Chapter 44 of The Grell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Froust. Chapter 44. That Heldon Foyle had come so closely on the heels of Grell's message was something of a shock to Eileen. She had not supposed that the detectives would be so quickly again on the trail. Her heart beat a little quicker, but her face gave no sign as she drew off her gloves while the footman told her of the superintendent's call at six. When she was alone, she sat with her long, slender hands gripping the arms of her chair, her grey eyes reflecting the light of the fire as she stared abstractedly into its depths. That she had done her utmost to help Grell escape she did not regret. She rather triumphed in the fact. Foyle could know nothing of that. At the worst, he could only suspect. Her precautions had been too complete. She was confident that she and Grell were the only two people who knew of the day's happenings. In any case, she argued to herself, it was better to see Foyle. She had come to respect his acumen, and fear he might draw an inference not too far from the truth if she denied him an interview. Besides, she asked herself, what had she to fear? Grell was safely away, and she could trust not to betray herself. At six o'clock to the minute, a footman, whose wooden face gave no indication of the fact that a moment before he had confidently informed Foyle in a stage whisper, she seemed pretty cheerful. When she came in, sir, been sitting all alone since, brought her a card. Then Foyle was ushered in, calm and unruffled, as though he were merely making a social call. She returned his bow frigidly. "'I hope you will not consider my call inconvenient, Lady Eileen,' he said suavely. "'I considered it of importance that I should see you as soon as possible.' She crossed her knees and regarded him composedly. "'I am sorry I was out when you called this morning. Had I known, I should have waited for you.' The detective admired the manner in which the girl carried off a difficult situation. She spoke quite indifferently, and yet he knew that she was entirely on her guard. He smoothed the top of his hat with his hand. "'Sometimes an appointment with one's bankers is a thing one can't put off,' he said blandly. A tiny spot of colour burned in each of her cheeks, and she flashed one quick look at the detective. This was an attack in flank which she had not expected. "'My bankers,' she lied instantly. "'I have not been to my bankers.' "'I beg your pardon,' he said, his voice keyed to a curious inflection. I was under the impression that you had, that, in fact, you changed a cheque for two hundred pounds made payable to bearer. She tried to hide a new feeling of alarm under a smile. Well, and if I did, she challenged, that is, of course, my private business, Mr. Foyle. You surely haven't come to cross-examine me on my habits of personal extravagance. Partly, he countered, shall we be plain with one another? She rose and stood with one arm resting on the mantelpiece, looking down on him. By all means, let us be plain. I am only a girl, and I cannot altogether follow the subtleties of your work. "'We are not such dreadful people, really,' he smiled. "'We try to do unpleasant work as little unpleasantly as possible. "'As you say, you are only a girl, and although perhaps uncommonly clever, "'you are, if you will pardon me, a little apt to let your impulses outreach your reason. "'More than once I have tried to advise you as I would my own daughter. "'Well, now, here is some more advice for what it is worth. "'Tell me exactly what you did between the time you went out this morning "'and the time you came in, whom you saw and where you went. "'Will you do that?' The tick of a small clock on the mantelpiece was loud. Eileen contemplated the tips of her boots with interest. Then a little ripple of laughter shook her. "'You are a dreadfully suspicious man. If it interests you, then you can have it. I went to the bank, and from there took a cab to my dressmaker's, where I paid a bill and was fitted for a new gown. I went on and did some shopping at various places. Shall I write out an exact account for you?' If it had been the detective's design to entrap her into a series of falsehoods, he might easily have done so. But there was no object in pursuing that course. He met her ingenuous gaze with a little lift of his shoulders. "'This is mere foolishness, Lady Eileen. I want to give you the opportunity of stating frankly what occurred from the moment you got Robert Grell's letter this morning. You know this story of the dressmaker would fall to pieces the instant we started making inquiries to verify it.' 
"'So I'm on my defence, then,' she said abruptly. He nodded, and watched closely the changing expression of her features. "'I have done nothing that gives you any right to question me,' she went on defiantly, "'and I am not going to submit to any more questions. Good morning. Can you find your own way out?' She caught at her skirt with one hand, and with her chin tilted high in the air, would have withdrawn haughtily from the room. She was afraid that his shrewd, persistent questioning and persuasion might end in eliciting from her more unguarded admissions. He had reached the door before her, however, and stood leaning with his back against it and his legs crossed and his arms folded. She stopped sharply, and he divined her intention. "'I shouldn't touch the bell if I were you,' he said peremptorily. "'It will be better for both of us if I say what I have got to say alone.' The decision in his tone stopped her as her hand was halfway to the bell-push. She paused, irresolute, and at last her hand dropped at her side. Foyle moved to her, laid a gentle hand on her shoulder, and half forced her to a seat. After all, with all her beauty and her wits, she was but a wayward child. Her eyes questioned him, and her lips quivered a little. "'Now,' he said sternly, "'tell me if your father signed the cheque you cashed, or whether you put his signature to it yourself.' Her lips moved dumbly, and the room seemed to quiver around her. Finally, as she had held herself in control hitherto, she was now thoroughly unnerved. She covered her face with her hands, and her frail figure shook with dry sobs. Foyle waited patiently for the outburst to pass. Suddenly she sprang to her feet and faced him with clenched hands. "'Yes, I did sign it,' she blazed. "'My father was out, and I wanted the money at once. He will not mind. He would have given it to me had he been here.' He checked her with a deprecating movement of his hand. "'Don't excite yourself, please,' he said soothingly. "'I felt bound to let you see there was a serious reason why I should press you to give an account of your movements to-day. Sit down quietly for a moment.' He waited patiently while she resumed her seat. He had foreseen that while she was on her guard he was unlikely either by threats or coaxing to induce her to speak. The hint of forgery had been deliberately intended to throw her off her balance. She could not know that her blotting-pad had betrayed that and more. Nor could she know that without the evidence of her father and the bank officials, neither of which was likely to be willingly given in the circumstances, she was not amenable to a criminal charge. "'Will you tell me now why you were so anxious to obtain that money?' "'Why you could not wait for an hour or two until your father returned? "'Don't hurry yourself. Think. "'Remember that I shall be able to check what you say.' "'I—I—' "'She choked and gulped as if swallowing something. "'Will it help you if I tell you that two of the notes "'which were given in exchange for the cheque "'were changed at a tailor's shop at Kingston, "'where a rough-looking man bought an overcoat and a suit of clothes?' "'You know that?' she gasped, "'the words coming slowly, one by one, from her lips.' The accuracy of his knowledge and the swiftness with which it must have been gained both astonished and astounded her. "'I know that,' he repeated, "'and I know more. I know, for instance, that Mr. Grell went to Sir Ralph Fairfield before applying to you. Did he tell you that?' He waited, but she made no answer. "'I know, too, that he has left London. You know where he is making for. Where is it?' Slowly she shook her head. "'I can't tell you,' she cried vehemently. "'You cannot force me to. He is an innocent man. You know he is. You can expose me. Tell all the world that I have been guilty of forgery if you like. You will not get me to lift a finger to hound him to his death.' Foyle had failed. He knew it was of little use pushing the matter further. He picked up his hat and gloves and mechanically passed a hand over his forehead. But there was one thing that had to be done before he left. "'I will not trouble you any further now,' he said in a level voice. "'I may take it you will tell your father of the—the the banking episode. "'That will relieve me of a rather painful task.' "'I will tell him,' she said dully. "'Then good evening, Lady Eileen. "'Good evening.' The superintendent drew on his gloves as he passed out of the street door. "'She knows her own mind, that girl,' he said to himself. "'She won't give away a thing. "'Either she's very much in love with him, or—' "'He rounded the corner into Barclay Street.' End of chapter 44